scripture reading this morning is Mark chapter 6, verses 21 through 29. Then an opportune day came when Herod, on his birthday, gave feast for his nobles, the high officers, and the chief men of Galilee. And when Herodias, his daughter, herself came in and danced and pleased Herod and those who sat with him, the king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you want, and I will give it to you. He swore. He also swore to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. So she went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. Immediately she came in in haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, yet because of the oath and because of those who sat with him, he did not want to refuse her. Immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded his head to be brought. And he went out and beheaded him in prison, brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. And when his, when the, his disciples heard of it, they came back and took away his corpse and laid it in a tomb. Good morning. Thankful for the presence of everyone that is here with us. We are glad to be able to worship our great God this morning, and we are thankful for your presence, your participation in our service. We are thankful that we are able to lift up our voices in praise and thanksgiving to God for the wonderful salvation that we have in Him. In Book of Acts in Acts chapter twenty, the Apostle Paul he was speaking to the elders, the church at Ephesus. In verse twenty-seven, he said, "For I do not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose or the whole counsel of God." There is sometimes that occasion might bring there difficult subjects and difficult situations that arise for. Gospel preachers, that they have to address certain things that are sensitive. And sometimes people can do so begrudgingly. They feel like they have to or they must just address this to check it off a list, if you will. I've heard some preachers treat it that way as such. They don't feel like they are convicted by something, but they feel like they are required to say something just to appease everyone. That is a shame, I feel. You read in John chapter or in Mark chapter six in our reading of John the Baptist and his fate, and how he was one who was martyred for his conviction, for his ability to speak the truth, and he did so because of a re, an understanding that as God's people, God requires holiness. He expects. He expects us to live in a way that is pleasing to God. But even when there might be difficult subjects that preachers have to address, they need to do so out of love. In the book of Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 4, in Ephesians the fourth chapter and in verse 15, it says there on that, in that text that, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ. 
And even whenever there might be difficult and sensitive situations, then circumstances and topics that need to be addressed, it needs to be done out of a motivation for love of those who are hearing the message. And today we're going to address something that might be one of those topics that we would think of a little sensitive, or it may appear that this is a uh, Sean's opinion that he is talking about. But And so I want to be on the straightforward on the front end of the sermon that due to the complexity and the sensitivity of this subject, I don't want to neglect anything of what the Bible says. We want to look at what the Scriptures say. This is not about my opinion. This is not about the elder's opinion or the church's opinion. This is about what God has revealed for us. And we want to see what the Bible says. And if there is anything that I say this morning that you're concerned about or that you disagree with, I welcome those conversations. I ask that you respectfully listen to the sermon. And that we study along together. That's what we're all striving to do, is study. We want to learn God's will. We want to preach the whole counsel of God, and we want to understand the whole counsel of God. And if there's a disagreement, please let's talk about it. Let's discuss it further. Because I don't want to be accused of preaching just my opinion. I want to preach faithfully what is in the Word of God. There may be some people here today who have heard a sermon like this and have been resentful because of the manner it has been preached or because of the opinions that were stated. Others may be here who believe what is spoken today. You might agree with me. And that you have maybe discussed this and talked about it with others. And that you've defended some of the conclusions that we'll see. Still yet, there may be another category of people who are here that have heard sermons like this and they disagree. Or maybe they disagreed at one time, but they have changed their mind and their behavior. And only you will know which group you belong to. This morning, I hope that we can study together the Word of God and come to a conclusion of what God's Word teaches and what God expects of us as His children. And the issue that I wanted to talk about is dancing. Because we need to be aware of God's Word and what it says. We also need to be aware of the Scriptures and the temptations that we might be facing. We need to appreciate also the difficulty of many young people and what they might be facing at school and the peer pressure that they might receive from friends, especially as they grow older into junior high and high school. We need to be aware of how Satan works and the tools that Satan will use to manipulate and to cause our young people to be distracted and to be tempted and to lose their focus and their sight on what is pleasing and right in God's sight. And so this morning, I hope that we can study from the Word of God, that we can have an open mind and open heart, be ready to be like the Bereans in Acts chapter 17, ready to listen and ready to hear and study from the Scriptures. And so this morning, I want us to look at what the Scriptures say about dancing, and I want us to look at some of the conclusions that we can see. And we will not have time to look at all of these passages on this chart right here, but you might want to jot them down and you might want to go and look at the context in further 
uh, examination at a later point. But in the book of Exodus, in Ex- Exodus chapter 15, this is the first time that dancing is mentioned in the Scripture. And we want to see that the context here. In Exodus chapter 15, the children of Israel have just crossed the Red Sea. They have been rescued from Egypt. And you have Miriam and other women who are dancing. In Exodus chapter 15 and in verse 20, it says, Miriam the prophetess, Aaron's sister, took the timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out after her with timbrels and with dancing. Miriam answered them, Sing to the Lord, for He is highly exalted. The horse and his rider He has hurled into the sea. You might just notice that there are only women that are mentioned as dancing here. These women were uh, dancing in celebration of what God had done, the salvation from Egypt that the children of Israel had enjoyed. This was not a uh, anything like you might see at a school formal in uh, where you have scantily dressed uh, women or anything like that. This is the people of God, the children of Israel, celebrating what God had done for them. In Judges chapter eleven, you have Jephthah's daughter as. Uh, her father has come home from battle and been victorious, leading the children of Israel in victory. She is coming out celebrating by dancing. Again, dancing celebrated by victory in battle. In the book of Psalms, in Psalm 30 and in verse 11, in Psalm 30 and in verse 11, David writes here, You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and girded me with gladness. You see that dancing is celebrated with joy. The celebration and the joyous occasions that we might receive. There is a time where David says that he began to move. He began to dance. He began to feel that joy and express that self. In the book of Luke, in Luke chapter 15, in Luke the 15th chapter, In Luke chapter 15 and in verse 25, as Jesus is giving the parable of the prodigal son, he mentions how there were there was music and dancing. In verse 25, now his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. I don't know how you hear dancing as much as you see it, but he heard something. Dancing was was associated with joy at the finding of the lost son. And there was this is what the scripture presents here. In 2 Samuel chapter 6 as as King David had brought the ark of the covenant back to Jerusalem. In 2 Samuel chapter 6 and in verse 14 it says and David was dancing before the Lord with all his might And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouting and the sound of the trumpet. Then it happened as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David that Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. What we see on this occasion is David's praise to God. He's dancing before the Lord in a way that would bring honor to God. It doesn't seem that he was bringing any shame upon himself. There was 
no indecency about him. Uh, he was praising God through this action. But while these might be at least neutral in terms of uh, how dancing is presented in the Scriptures, dancing is oftentimes, in many of our minds probably, associated with acts of immorality. In the book of Exodus, in Exodus chapter 32, as the children of Israel were at the base of Mount Sinai, as they told Aaron that they were tired of waiting for Moses to come down from the mountain after waiting for 40 days, they were tired of waiting and so they wanted Aaron to build a golden calf. And in Exodus chapter 32 and verse 6, it says, so the next day they rose early and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. And what most people think about that phrase, in particular the eat and drink and rose up to play, that this was just a raucous party of drinking and sexual immorality that was going on. And you continue on throughout this chapter in verse 19. It came about as soon as Moses came near the camp that he saw the calf and the dancing. And Moses' anger burned and he threw the tablets from his hands and shattered them at the door, at the foot of the mountain. We see that dancing here is associated with the idolatry of worshiping that golden calf. And instead of praising God, they were dancing in celebration of what this calf had done. An explicit act of violation of God's law, that they were worshiping that calf, and the idols, that God had commanded them not to participate in. And what we might be surprised is that the Bible in all fairness, is doesn't just outright condemn rhythmically moving to a beat of music. In the book of Ecclesiastes, in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, if you would turn there with me. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, and beginning in verse 1, Notice what Solomon writes here. He says, There is an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every event under heaven, a time to give birth and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. It's not that rhythmically moving your body to music is wrong or immoral. And perhaps that has not always been presented in sermons like these. But it's my contention this morning is that it's about the kind of dancing that begins to cross a line. It's the circumstances that surround dancing that might make it wrong or inappropriate. 
Because in the examples that we have seen in, in on the chart that we just listed all the passages where dancing is mentioned in the Bible, you don't see two unmarried partners of the opposite sex dancing together. You just can't find it. Now, we have seen joyous occasions in celebration and in worship to God. And I would contend that those movements would have been modest. They would have been God-honoring. They would not have been sexual, sensual, nor provocative. That would have incited lust. In the book of Song of Solomon, what you do find here in this passage in the Old Testament that mentions dancing, is married couples are permitted to dance and enjoy the physical relationship of being close to one another in Song of Solomon chapter 6 and in verse 13, come back, come back, O Shulamite, come back, come back, that we may gaze at you. Why should you gaze at the Shulamite as at the dance of the two companies? That there's the enjoyment of the physical relationship between a husband and wife. It's being described as you continue on to read and throughout chapter 7 you see that physical relationship described in a very beautiful way. But what I want us to recognize is we, we don't see two unmarried partners of the opposite sex dancing together. We do see dancing that is between married couples as being allowed. And we don't see immodest dancing in the Scriptures. So, what about dancing? What makes it dangerous? Well, if you would, turn back to Mark chapter 6. We mentioned John the Baptist and his courage earlier. And in our Scripture reading, in Mark chapter 6, what incited his death was Herodias' daughter dancing. In Mark chapter 6 and in verse 21, it says, A strategic day came when Herod on his birthday came a banquet for his lords and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. Just imagine here that you have all the powerful men in your district that you oversee. Okay, That Herod is in charge of. He has all his military commanders there. And it's his birthday, it's a celebration, it's a banquet. And it says that when the daughter of Herodias herself, and this is not Herod's daughter, it's his stepdaughter. When the daughter of Herodias herself came in and danced, she pleased Herod. You would notice that word, pleased. As one commentator says, a dance such as is referred to here at a banquet of drunken men would have been a suggestive and sensual event, and Herod's pleasure may imply sexual desire for his stepdaughter. Another commentator said that this is a banquet done in a fashion bound to offend the religiously scrupulous. It is shown by the fact that Herodias' daughter dances, apparently a lascivious dance, meant to arouse Herod and make him vulnerable to suggestion. Dancing pleases the fleshly appetites. The Scripture states that Herod saw this dance and he was pleased. He was gratified by watching his stepdaughter dance. 
And this pleased him in some way. You continue on in the passage and you see some other things that are not good that come about as a result of this dance. In verse 23, as the commentator said, he's open to suggestion. In verse 23, he swore to her, whatever you ask of me, I will give it to you up to half of my kingdom. That's a very foolish kind of bargain for a king, isn't it? To make that because you have pleased me so, I'm going to give you up to half of my kingdom, whatever you request. Dancing can cloud good judgment, doesn't it? Decisions that you might not have made because you were sexually aroused or gratified changes your judgment. Dancing also creates an environment for peer pressure to thrive. Notice the rest of the text in verse 24. It says, And when she went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask for? And the two schemed together to ask for John the Baptist's head to be given on a platter. It says in verse 26, And although the king was very sorry, yet because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests, because of his dinner guests, he was unwilling to refuse her. He was feeling not just the pressure of having made a promise, but he made a foolish promise in front of all his friends. And it all came about because of this dance that took place. That you have here Herod who was content with leaving John the Baptist in prison. Now he is put in a bind where he has to keep this promise. Not because he had to per se, but because he felt peer pressure. Now, just based on those three principles alone that you see here in Mark chapter 6, I would ask you, especially parents, do you think it is a good idea to send your children to a dance? Knowing what could happen. Knowing what is there, the danger that you might be putting them in. Because provocative dancing that stirs up lust is condemned in the Scripture because of the category and the kind of dancing that it is. One of the words that you might see in Scripture, and I think certainly qualifies for Mark chapter 6 and the kind of dancing that Herodias' daughter Salome gave. If you just turn over to Mark the 7th chapter, notice what Jesus condemns here kind of activity that is condemned. He says in verse 22, Jesus does deeds of coveting and wickedness as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. Those are the things that condemn someone. And that word sensuality, maybe some translations would say lasciviousness or, or licentiousness. And one... Greek dictionary, it says 
Sensuality is lack of self-constraint, which involves one in conduct that violates all bounds of what is socially acceptable self-abandonment, especially of sexual excesses. Seems that Mark chapter 6 describes that kind of behavior. Another dictionary, Lunida, behavior completely lacking in moral restraint, usually with the implication of sexual licentiousness, licentious behavior, extreme immorality. Thayer defines sensuality as unbridled lust, excess, licentiousness, wantonness, outrageousness, shamelessness, insolence, filthy words, indecent bodily movement, unchaste handling of males and females. Just think about that definition. And you think about what happens when you put a young man and a young woman together dancing with one another. And you think about the implications of what happened in Mark chapter 6. Where Herod was pleased. He made bad decisions. And he gave in because of the peer pressure. And he was an adult man. And yet we sometimes might think, well, dancing won't harm our children. There's nothing that is going on there that we can't control or we can't see or put a stop to. But there is a correlation between dancing and sensuality. And if you're thinking, oh, Sean, he's he's just an old fogey, you know? He's just this really conservative kind of guy, but he's just, you know, he's old school. Don't take my word for it. We're going to put some quotes up here. And I'm not endorsing the authors of these quotes, but these are psychologists, these are educators. These are people who have master's degrees and PhDs in the, who study dancing, which I didn't know that was really a thing you could do and study dancing, but these people have found a way to do it and get a degree for it. And this one guy, Peter Levat, he says, It's no surprise that nightclubs are dark places. They foster feelings of lust, sex, and love. And sometimes when we dance there, he says, dancing is, according to Bernard Shaw, George Bernard Shaw, the vertical expression of a horizontal desire legalized by music. It's interesting, you read that whole article and he's, he presents it. It's a pretty short article, but he describes how you know this is he, he tries to present some scientific data to support his thesis here at the beginning. And then he goes to looking at some anecdotal evidence and he talks about how he went to a nightclub with uh, three of his female friends back in the 80s and they 
went there to a Halloween party and how he had no interest in them. They were these women were dressed as goths and everything, and he just had no interest in them at all whatsoever. And he goes out and he's drinking, of course, and then he comes in and he sees one of his friends dancing. That has they've been married for you know thirty years now. <laughs> he said that's anecdotal evidence that dancing does provoke something inside. Another quote. If you've ever watched Dirty Dancing or spent any amount of time at a middle school semi-formal, you know there's no denying the palpable links between dancing and sex. Both acts tap into our primal urges and both can be performed to perfection, coupled up in a group or solo. Music and dancing is a powerful aphrodisiac as it gets the juices flowing and energy moving in the body. And another quote for you to consider. This was originally written in 1938. Another motive for the dance is the sexual motive. The dance has always been used as a means of expressing sexual desire and as a means of wooing. We find this same sex motive in the modern ballroom dance, a legitimate opportunity for contact. What? Don't, not appealing to these people in these quotes as anything of divine authority. But I do ask that if they can see the correlation, then why can't Christians see that? If these people who are highly educated and who have no concern for what the Bible says in many cases, if they can see the correlation, and we don't need to be ignorant of how Satan might work. And what we see is that, especially in this quote here from a textbook that was used uh, in many schools, Dance We Must, that the, the kind of dance has very little to do with it. It's more about making opportunity for contact. The word sensuality, as Thayer defined it, remember how Thayer said, unbridled lust, excess, licentiousness, wantonness, outrageousness, shamelessness, insolence, filthy words, indecent bodily movement, unchaste handling of males and females. So, what does the Bible require of Christians? God expects Christians to be holy. If you would turn with me to the book of 1 Peter, we're going to be looking at a few passages here in 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning there. In 1 Peter chapter 2, and after we look at a few of these passages, the lesson will be yours. In 1 Peter chapter 2, notice what Peter says. 
Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Notice what Peter encourages Christians to do. That first you have to separate yourself from this world, don't you? You have to adopt not a worldly perspective, but a godly perspective. And that means that you are then going to abstain. He says in verse 11, to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. And we need to abstain. We need to stop doing what is wrong. I think that would mean in good wisdom that we not encourage our children to go to the prom or the homecoming dance. We don't participate in those activities. Even if they are school-sanctioned events. I know what happens at those school-sanctioned events. I've seen some of it. There's plenty of sinful behavior that goes on at school-sanctioned events. But then it's not just about abstaining either. Notice what he says in verse 12. Keep your, your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. What we are also encouraged to do is not just abstain, but we're encouraged to be good and do what is right to do good be an advocate for change be a light among your friends and your neighbors i think back when i was growing up and uh kelsey can talk about this as well she and i would go to a banquet in conway arkansas that it was a prom alternative banquet where we got to dress up, we got to go out and with, with our friends. You could couple up and go with a date if you wanted to. And yet there was, it was a banquet. There was a motivational speaker. There was food. There was everything that you want. There were the pictures. There was just no dancing. You got to hang out all night. We go to lock-in and hang out with our friends and play games and all sorts of things. It was a prom without the dancing and much of the temptation was removed. And parents did that. Members of the local church, no organization behind it, just parents wanting to provide something for their children. Be that kind of change. We need to... Be committed to that. And even whenever it might get hard, even whenever people might look at us a little funny, in 1 Peter chapter 4, Peter says in verse 1, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because He who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. 
For the time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excess of dissipation, and they malign you. But they will give an account to Him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Christian, we need to not live for the lust of the flesh. We need to be living for the will of God. That's what Peter is admonishing. We need to be committed to the will of God and doing what is right, staying away from all the dangers of the temptations of this world and be committed to doing what is right and proper and holy. Even whenever people might think, you're a little strange for not letting your kids go to the prom. Or letting your kids dance with other teenagers. You're a little odd for that. Yeah, maybe so. But I need to be willing to do that for the will of God. Because ultimately, Christians must be holy as God is holy. Peter admonishes at the very opening of the book. In 1 Peter chapter 1, in verse 14, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts, which were yours in ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. In the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 13, the Apostle Paul writes here at the close, uh, nearing the close of that letter. In Romans chapter 13, and in verse 12, he says, The night is almost gone, and the day is near. Therefore let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly, as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the, the Lord Jesus and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. We need to be living in the day, not in the darkness. We don't need to fall for Satan's Vices and the devices that he might use. This morning, appreciate your good attention and your patience as we have looked at what is a difficult topic, I know, and one that is a little out of fashion to talk about. But if we see something here in the Scriptures that we are called as children of God to live above the fray, to live differently than the world, to be courageous, to take a stand for what is right. And we want to help each and every one here to be courageous and make those same kinds of commitments to follow the Lord to be committed to doing what is right and pleasing to Him. And if you have not begun to make that your life's commitment by becoming a Christian, we want to help you this morning to become a child of God. And if you believe in Jesus Christ to be your Savior, 
The one who went to the cross to die for you and your sins. Will you come to Him in obedience, believing in Him, repenting and turning away from any sin that might be in your life, confessing your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, to be baptized in water to have your sins washed away. We want you to become a child of God. To enjoy that beautiful feeling of having your sins removed from you. To have the liberty and the freedom that is provided by God's grace. And if you have made the step to become a Christian, but you've not been living faithfully, and you need to renew your obedience and your holiness to Him, we want to help you this morning as well. There won't be shame. We want to encourage you to do what is right. We will do what is ever within our power to help you. But you think about all the benefits of being a child of God. There's a spiritual family that you're a part of. There's a Savior that we receive who gives us eternal life. We have a Father in heaven who loves you. We have a hope of that home in heaven. And I tell you that anything that we have to give up in this life, any sinful vice that we might be tempted to engage in, that hope of eternal life and all the benefits of being a child of God, it far outweighs anything that this world offers. Any temptation that Satan may present you, our Father and the promise of salvation and the home in heaven is far, far better. If we can help you in some way this morning, would you come now as we stand and as we sing?